All right, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 4, please. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has just uh, finished being baptized by his cousin John. God's preparing him for his ministry, which he'll begin now. And you stop and think about that, that God prepared Jesus for 30 years, for three and a half years of ministry. God prepared John the Baptist for 30 years for possibly um, a year's ministry. And it was over. Um, Men of uh, deep convictions, men that God had prepared, men who had given themselves to the Lord in preparation, having a a passion for the um, call of God and the anointing and the ministry that God had called them to a sense of Awesome responsibilities. We'll see John. John was uh, no wimp. He was, not, uh, he was not politically correct. He didn't fear uh, anyone but God. And because of that, it cost him his life. And that's always been the case with men and women who have strong convictions about Jesus Christ and the scriptures. The history of the church is um, bathed in blood. Uh, the seed of the church is the martyr's of the church. And um, if you've never read Fox's Books of Martyrs, I would encourage you to get that. It gives you of all the hor- horrific persecution against the Christians through the first century on. And there's some new ones on, Volume 1 and 2 of Jesus Freaks. It gives you contemporary um, uh, horrific suffering of many believers throughout the world. And certainly, um, that has been the characteristic of the church. Why we as Americans have uh, allowed to be exempt from that type of suffering, I have no idea, but I just wonder often if we're not the worst for it. Um, certainly when you are persecuted, and I am not asking to be persecuted, but when you are being persecuted and put in jail and everything else, um, you can't live a life of compromise. It's either one or the other. Uh, It's going to keep you on the straight and narrow a lot easier than um, having greater liberties and having greater comfort and all that. Um, The church has never been hurt by persecution. The church has always been hurt by compromise and comfort. Always. And comfort leads to compromise, sadly. But here in chapter 4 now, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Father has given his witness about this, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. He has told his cousin John, we must fulfill our righteousness, on whom the Spirit you see descend and remain. He is the one that baptized with the Holy Spirit. And now begins the ministry of Jesus, John a little before that. Remember, John is six months older. But here now, and Luke is the only one that tells us that Jesus was filled with the Spirit. And Luke is the only one that tells us that Jesus was praying before his baptism. If you go through Luke, we did a study on the prayer life of Jesus. Luke gives the fullest prayer life of Jesus. I'm not going to tell you how many times. Go through the book of Luke and mark every time, and every time you see Jesus praying, it's a very, very important mark 
to teach us about prayer. It's the fullest life of Jesus in prayer. And so here, he is led by the Spirit. He's been filled by the Spirit. Mark says, immediately the Spirit drove him, literally thrusted him out into the wilderness. The geographical location from the lower parts of the Jordan up to the higher parts of the uh, desert wilderness there. And um, once again, it is for testing. Uh, but tempting here is of Satan to prove the genuineness of who Jesus was. Um, remember the first Adam was um, created in innocence, if you will. God put him in a garden and he gave him a time of what some people call, call probation. And um, he failed through his wife Eve. And now we have the last Adam, Jesus Christ. The first Adam failed. The last Adam came and he would not fail. But it's not because there wasn't a potential for him or a possibility for him to fail, as we said this morning. It's because he was faithful to the Father because if there was no potential for Jesus to fail, then there wasn't any testing. Remember that Jesus came in the exact likeness of Adam prior to the fall. Not after the fall, but prior to the fall. By one man sin entered in, and death through him to all men. By one man life and eternal life is given through Jesus Christ. Two federal heads. The first Adam failed. The last Adam, Jesus Christ. Do not call Jesus a second Adam. He is called the last Adam. There's only two. He is called the second man, the first man, Adam, the second man, Jesus Christ. He is the last Adam, the exact representation of the first to show and to prove that the first Adam chose to fail but did not have to fail and the last Adam would not fail though we had to have a possibility of failure because if there is no possibility, then there is no victory and there's no real test. It's real simple, okay? And he did it for our example that as he did it depending on the Father, praying at his baptism, being filled with the Spirit of God, being driven and controlled by the Spirit to be tested, using the Word of God as we'll see. That's, those were his weapons, and that's how he overcame the enemy, leaving us his example and his footsteps that we might follow. So the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is very important for the believer to understand what really happened. God was not tempted. God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither does he tempt any man, James says. And so who was confronted? Jesus tells us, man shall not live by bread alone, as we'll see. Jesus had two natures, human and divine, yet without sin, just like Adam before the fall. Identical. Okay? And so Satan was trying to lure Jesus out to be tempted and for him to respond as God which would have been no big deal to defeat Satan as God God created the devil but for the last Adam 
the second man, identical to the first man that failed, now the test is going to be passed and the condition is going to be reversed. He will be a quickening spirit, being victorious over Satan, destroying his authority, goes to the cross, and he destroys him who has the power of death and opens the prison doors, as Isaiah says, to those that are in darkness and dead. Wow, what an amazing work God did for us. Amazing. And so here again, he is driven to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. Now, 40 is a number of judgment. You have the 40 days uh, that rain for the flood. You have um, the 40 years of the wilderness. Um, and so number 40 is usually a, a, a representative of, um, of judgment. Um, here again, Satan or the devil, as um, Matthew uh, calls him, Luke calls him Satan. It depends at different times. But here, he is, um, uh, he is not eaten. He's not taken water. And usually, depending on the individual, seven to eight weeks, you can go without food if you really had to. Of course, your body will start eating the fat first. And then it'll begin to go into the muscle. And once it starts eating on the muscle, you're, you're dying. You're starving. And, uh, but water, you can't go six, seven days. That is very crucial. So again, even if we try to analyze it from our perspective, remember that Jesus is in the very same state as the first Adam before the fall. So his physical condition is far different from our condition of being in fallen nature, okay? Two different things. So we can be sure certain things, the time element, the condition, but there's no way we can enter into that engagement or understanding because we've never been there, all right? It just is beyond us. And so here again, um, for 40 days, and it was during this time, 40 days, that Jesus was tempted of the devil constantly we're not told what temptations, how he did it. And then came the three main temptations. Now, Matthew and Luke cover the three. Mark does not cover any of them. He just says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. John does not present Jesus in the temptations because he presents Jesus as the Son of God. And God cannot be tempted. He focuses on something completely different. The first three Gospels are called synoptic. John's is not a synoptic Gospel. Matthew presents Jesus as King of the Jews. Mark as a servant of man. Luke as the Son of Man. And John as the Son of God. So each Gospel has a very specific purpose on how Jesus is viewed and how he's presented. The audience is different. Matthew, Jew. Mark, Roman, Luke, the Greek, John, the church, different audiences. So it's very important, and they each have their place. And so here now in verse 3, he says, Now when the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. 
This is the first temptation. The devil appears to Jesus for the first time here. And he addressed them as a son of God. A better translation of if is since affirming. He's not doubting or questioning that. And the devil, the devil here actually commands Jesus to turn the stones into bread. It's an imperative command. This first temptation or testing is, um, involves the physical, the lust of the flesh, 1 John 2, 16, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the pride of life. All these three are the categories and the avenues by which you and I are tested through our life. Adam and Eve went through the same ones. Jesus went through the same categories there. His desire was to have Jesus meet his need for the moment. Um, literally to exercise unbelief and dependency in God. To help yourself. Now sometimes this happens with Christians where they become impatient with God. And they're going through a testing, a trial. And they have to make a decision. They have to do something. They have to act or whatever it may be. And rather than waiting upon God, they act on their own. They take matters into their own hands and they bring much hurt to their lives. God is always on time. He's never been late. Have you ever read in one of the Gospels where people say, Jesus, Jesus, heal me. He says, I'll be right back. I'm running a little late. I'll be back in five minutes, okay? Oh, just walking, going here or there. No hurry. Right on time. And so we have to learn patience through God. James speaks about it. Lest we become doubters, tossed to and fro in every way. Again, Jesus being the last Adam, just like the first Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, very important. Just like Eve, the woman saw the tree that was good for food, appealing to the body senses to captivate her. Genesis 3, 6. Uh, the flesh never says enough. <laughs> There's always more. I don't know if you've seen that commercial. I think it's hilarious on TV and this girl's in a closet and she's got these, it's got to be 200, 300 pair of shoes and she's just all delighted. And her husband opens the closet door, walks in, and he's just disgusted. And she goes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he shuts the door. She goes, I'm not sorry. That's the flesh. Hell and destruction are never full, and neither are the eyes of man ever satisfied. It's always more. This is one of the problems with having money. When you have money, you can do whatever you want. When you don't have a lot of money, you've got to budget and really pray and think what you want to spend that money on. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with money in itself. It's what it does to us. It's a disadvantage at times. Sometimes money can bring more problems than it can solve. And yet we all need money and material things to get through life, but... But the question is to how much do we need? And each person has to make those decisions based on the relationship to Jesus Christ and good conscience towards God and to be good stewards of what God gives them and that they honor God. 
in everything and that it's not just for them very, very important. And so in verse 4, he says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so it is written, he resorts to the scriptures, as he does all the time. Deuteronomy 8.3 Bread is necessary. Your body desires it, needs it, and it um, nourishes our body. But there's supposed to be a higher premium upon God's word. There is the majority of, you know, look, even our Sunday nights have shrunk because the culture's effect in people's minds, even Christians. Most churches don't even have a Sunday night. And many of them close it because they see only 20, 10, or 15 come. Listen. If one of you show up here on Sunday night, we will have Sunday night. Okay? Numbers don't impress me. It doesn't matter. One of the faults of the Internet. The Internet is great in terms that it can be a great benefit. But it makes Christians lazy. Compromising. That internet is because you really can't get here. You're sick or something happened. It's not a substitute for church. Don't let the culture and the world press you into its mold, ladies and gentlemen. There's no greater place for you to be at than the church. There is no substitute for the church. Is the corporate body of Jesus Christ. You're here to hear the voice of God and to obey God and to let him lead you on how he will use you among the people you will speak to, pray for, and interact with. Very, very important. So the culture is a detriment today. But again, we are the ones who allow that. We should be Above that as Christians. Again, when there's the need, put it on the internet. But when you're okay, you're healthy, come. I just wonder how many times Christians would miss church if California, it snowed all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Fair weather Christians, it just depends which way the wind's blowing, you know? A weather vane. Jesus went to the cross for us, ladies and gentlemen. The very least we can do is walk a couple of blocks if we have to park two blocks away. People say, why don't you guys get more parking? No, it's good advertisement. And it shows you that you're a Christian. If Jesus went to the cross, you can walk two blocks. It's not going to hurt you. In fact, it'll kind of help you out. <laughs> a little exercise. Now, the premium on God's word. What value do you put on God's word? Job says, I esteem God's word more than my daily substance. Wow. You eat food, 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 you'll live long. But if you eat the word of God, you'll live forever. There's a big difference. 
Now, we're not saying you're not to eat. We're not saying you should go on a four-day fast. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the priorities of God's word. Jesus says, man shall be, shall not live by bread alone. He didn't allow Satan to bring him out as God to defeat him. Man, that's who is receiving the temptations here. Verse 5, he says, then the devil uh, took him up into a high city. Uh, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, uh, for it is written, He shall give the angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. The second temptation by the devil here, location is this holy city, the top of the temple, Matthew uh, or Luke tells us Jerusalem. The pinnacle has the article, it's the wing temple. It's very... Uh, specific location at one of the uh, um, uh, edges of the wall. Some believe maybe the royal porch. Others believe it's Solomon's porch over the Kidron Valley that has a precipice about four to 600 feet. Perhaps that is a better place. But either way, it's a very specific place that he took him. And um, the solicitation is to tempt God. The devil appeal again to the Son of God, not man, not the last Adam. Okay? The devil quoted Psalms 91, 11 through 12. That Jesus might be presumptuous to tempt God, casting himself off to prove that he's trusting God when in fact he would be tempting God. If God tells you to do something, then God will enable you and he'll go before you. If you do it, you're on your own. Do you know how many people take the word of others when they hear a prophecy? The Lord calls you out to Africa and they don't even pray about it. They know nothing. They sell their house. They sell the kids, everything else. And they take off. And then they get out there. And everything falls apart. And they come back bitter saying, why would God? God didn't call you. You sent yourself because you believed the guy was prophesying. You didn't bother to wait and pray and have God confirm if that was from him. God knows where you live. He is able to call you, direct you to where you're to go, missions, ministry, whatever it is. That's your responsibility, not the pastor. You don't go to the pastor to ask him what you should be doing. Pastor's just a man. You go to God. Lord, what do you want me to do? Where do I fit and where is it that I fit? What are my gifts? And then God will be faithful to do that and you will be an asset to the church of Jesus Christ. And so here, he quotes the psalm. He omitted some words though. These are the words that Satan omits. He's, he's, he's great at quoting out of context or partially. He omitted to keep you in all thy ways. So the second temptation deals with the spirit, the tree of desirable to make one wise, to exalt oneself, to be as God, if you will, the pride of life in Genesis 3, 6. The same thing as the woman, same thing here. Verse 7, the response of Jesus to the devil is, uh, again, depends on the word of God. It is written again. When Satan comes and attacks you, when Satan is trying to just uh, harass you, when Satan is just, you know, just 
messing up your marriage, whether it be through you or your wife or your kids or whatever it is, look behind the scenes. There's a guy with red PJs behind there. All right? It's the devil. There's the flesh. And there's the world. That's a bad darkness. A trinity of darkness. And then you've got another trinity of darkness with you. Me, myself, and I. The evil of my heart. The selfishness of my life. So I have to walk in the spirit. I have to deny myself. I have to pick up my cross and follow him. Every day, the minute I get up. You realize sometimes I, I am fighting with the enemy even in my sleep. It's amazing. Throwing scriptures at them. <laughs> I have to resort to the scriptures. He's a liar. So you must know the word of God. If you don't know the word of God, like a gun without bullets, it's worth it. You can tell me how big a gun you have. You can tell me, oh, it's shiny. Look at this and that and how precision it is. Isn't that you have any bullets? Uh-uh. It's worthless. Throw it away. A Christian without the word of God is useless. Absolutely useless. You must know the word of God like a mechanic knows that engine. Inwards and outwards. This takes time. This takes commitment. It doesn't come overnight. Today, October 1st, we celebrated our 31st year in this building. 31 years ago, we walked in this building. The Lord gave it to us. Fast. In those little plastic things that they have, thumb drives, all that has ever been taught here in 37, 38 years, the entire New Testament and Old Testament put together verse by verse like I'm doing tonight, it's 800 hours for 39, 29 bucks. I don't know what even they sell it for. Instantly at your fingertips. You put it in your computer. You put it in your car. You download it in your computer, and then you still have it for your car. Have the Word of God just, even without commentary, just the reading while you're driving. Go through a book over and over and over. There's so many resources for Christians today, but too often Christians want to be entertained today. They don't want to study, and they pay a great price. And so... Here Jesus responding to the devil. He puts it out of context. He is a master at that. In verse 7 he says, Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6.16 Jesus exposes the devil's intent to tempt God. We are not to do that in any way. And there's many ways we can do that. The context, again, is when the people tempted and contended with God. 
uh, to furnish them water in Massa and Meribah. In uh, Exodus seventeen seven, they said, Is the Lord among us or not? Sometimes people can become very presumptuous or very arrogant in terms of demanding on God. I think of the, a major portion of the church today of, of um, the faith doctrine and um, nab it and grab it and don't confess nothing negative. They, they demand God to do things. They're lucky God doesn't smoke them. You don't demand from God anything. He is the master. We are the servants. He's our heavenly father. We're his children. And the church has just gone wayside in many ways today. Verse 8 and 9, you have the third temptation. He says again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Once again, the location, exceedingly high mountain, the purpose to show him all the kingdoms with their glory, their splendor. Goes back to Genesis 3 6. It was pleasant to the eye to allure the lust of the eye. The declaration of the devil was not true at all. It's false. All these things I will give to you. Luke adds, for it has been given to me authority to give to anybody who I want to give them to. That's a lie. The earth does not belong to the enemy, the devil. I dare anybody to show me one verse where through the fall of Adam, God gave the earth over to Satan. You will never find it. Now he is called the God of this world, the prince and the power of the earth. But he is a rebel. He is a squatter. The earth does not belong to him. He has limited authority, temporary authority, vested by God. He holds captive men to do his will and women who are fallen, not born again. But Jesus is the greater authority. So, When he says he has all his authority, he will give it. He can give temporary. But it doesn't mean that what he said is true. Sometimes people think, well, Jesus did not correct him. Well, not correcting somebody that says something that's not true doesn't validate that it's true. I gave you the example this morning, those of you who are here. Sometimes somebody says something so outlandish, so ridiculous that rather than to correct them or even address them, you just kind of look at them and you just go and you walk away. That's worse. But because I don't correct somebody in something that is so wrong doesn't make it right or truth. Now, everything we have in the scriptures is recorded and reliable 
to what was stated. But not everything that's stated is true biblically. Okay? Satan said to Eve, Oh, you will not die. The day that you eat, you become God just like him. That's an accurate, reliable record of what was stated. But what was stated is a lie. It's not truth biblically. So the context is very important on how you read and what you read. Very, very important. And so, the third temptation of the lust of the eye was the soul. Pleasant. The three temptations um, were to try to shortcut the cross. Satan is trying to have Jesus not go to the cross and it doesn't stop. Even all the way to the point of the cross. In verse 10, He says, then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God, and him only you shall worship. And so the response of Jesus is to order him away, Satan, the enemy, the opposer, the adversary. Luke says, get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6. 13, regarding the idolatry, the worship uh, that leads to serving uh, that really only belongs to God. Uh, anything else is a prostitution of worship. God is the only one that's to be worshipped. He alone has created us, not we ourselves. And so Jesus once again fights it with the word of God. When Satan comes and you're being hassled, when things are going wrong, Resort to the word of God. Be filled with the spirit of God. Be in prayer. Very, very important. Um, it, it seems that we try to do everything uh, to fix whatever we have. And then when we feel we just have exhausted every means, then we say, all right, let's pray. No, that's the first thing you should do. Until you pray, everything else you do is worthless. Okay? Very, very important. Verse 11 he says, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. He passed the test. Luke says, until a more opportune time. Luke 4.13. Satan's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. First Peter 5.8 says. So we are warned. Be vigilant. Sober. All the warnings in Scripture, ladies and gentlemen, are to the Christian, not to the non-Christian. People say, so you, 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 you say that Christians can be deceived? If they can, why warn them? Jesus is not warning non-believers. He warns non-believers of the judgment that come to evangelize them that they be born again. But all the warnings in the letters, the New Testament and Old Testament is to believers. Do not be deceived. Do not go to the left hand, the right hand. Do not go back. All those warnings are to believers. Hymenians, Alexander, Demas, 
shipwreck of the faith, love this present world. You don't think they were Christians? Paul warns them by name because they were a danger to the church. Demas was all over the place with Paul, a great servant. Never say never. I propose that you understand that you had a free will before you were saved, right? When you heard the gospel, you had a free will to say, yes, I want to repent, or no, I don't. You accepted the Lord. I presume you're a Christian sitting here. Now, is your free will gone? Are you now a robot? Darkness doesn't attract you? Let me laugh. If you don't walk in the spirit, you will walk in the flesh just as I. It's A or B. There is no C. So I have to put on the mind of Christ. I have to put on the armor. I have to fight the good fight. I have to not be ignorant about Satan's devices as he transforms himself and his angels into those of light. Deception. I have to be insulated, not isolated. I have to trust God, not my flesh. I have to realize the attack against my life is not against me directly. It's against the knowledge of God, Paul says. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 through 5. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, bringing into captivity every thought that stands and comes against the knowledge of God. It's always against the knowledge of God. So you have to know the word of God. And when husband and wife are not equally growing, then there's going to be greater problems. And men, you are the head of your home. You must know the word of God. You have to lead your wife. You have to cover your wife. You have to protect your wife. And you have to make sure that your wife and your children come to church with you so the entire family is growing and you're holding each other accountable to the glory of God. You do that. We've had adults say, well, you know, you guys, you know, you should take care of my kid. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. Your kid is your kid. He lives with you. If you come here three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and midweek or Tuesday, we have them for three, four hours for the whole week. You have them seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You are responsible for guiding your children, for holding them accountable, for bringing consequences. But again, the culture has affected our parenting and parents fear the culture and the politically correctness and social services and everything else. And so they hand their children over to the state. The educational camps like Mao in China are our universities. Indoctrinating and destroying our children. You've got to be really grounded and really know what you're doing if you're going to go get an education. You can work through it, I'm sure, 
but the majority don't. So you have to pray, Lord, is school for me today or not? We're living in a completely different age. I wish I could allow you to hear some of the sad stories of parents who have sent their kids to universities that grew up in this church. And they just gave up their faith. Whose fault is it? Well, first of all, it's their own fault. And second of all, it's parents. If my child is going to a a university that's indoctrinating them in socialism and Marxism and anti-American and anarchy, I'm not going to be flipping the bill. First of all, if my child wants to go after 18, write your own bill. But I'm not going to pay money to have you destroyed. It's real simple. A water faucet has a shutoff valve. That's what you do. Heartbreak sometimes. But you, but you can't say, well, what am I going to do? Do what you're supposed to do. Be a parent. You wouldn't give your son or daughter money for heroin, would you? Or alcohol knowing he's going to kill himself? Then why would you pay for an education that's going to destroy them? Take them away from God? Same thing. Hmm. Jesus is victorious. Angels minister unto him. He's passed the test. Uncompromising. Verse 12 to 17, the ministry of Jesus in Galilee is given to us. In verse 12, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And so... um, the news about John being in prison, Jesus went to Galilee until uh, he returned to Judea. There's about a year between verse 11 and 12 um, in John's imprisonment. Um, we're going to see the call of the disciples also. Jesus um, will later on defend John as he sends his disciples to see if he's the one they were looking for another. Uh, in chapter 11. Um, John was in prison at the castle of uh, Machaerus for saying that it was not lawful for Herod to have his brother Philip's wife. Uh, in Matthew 14, 3 through 12, the, the uh, details are there. John was a very bold man. John spoke against anything and everything. He was upright. And here Jesus um, hears about this. And in leaving Nazareth, verse 13, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Neptali, uh, 
and it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. So here from verse um, 13 on down to 16, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Um, by the way, this is right after the preaching of the synagogue at Nazareth. Remember, Jesus come out of baptism. He's gone through the temptation. There's about a year that John gives us the ministry uh, of, of, of um, Jesus dealing with some of the disciples in chapter 1 of John. Uh, he gives you that. Uh, so that when he comes here to call them, this isn't the first meeting with them. Um, sometimes when we read Luke and, um, and Matthew, it seems like it's straight on, but John gives us that little bit in the beginning in chapter 1. Um, this was the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Uh, Capernaum was his own city. Uh, Capernaum was the tax center. It went through the main um, road to Damascus and Egypt, uh, very profitable. Uh, remember, Matthew was a tax collector, okay? Very prosperous. He threw a big going away party for Jesus. Um, that entire area had been ravaged by foreign invaders, um, the um, Assyrians in Second Kings 15 and 17, Tilgath Pileser. And they had settled in that whole upper region of the Galilee. Remember that in our introduction, Jerusalem and the people in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and all that, they didn't think too highly of the Galileans. They kind of thought of them as shipyard okies or um, something like that, half-breeds, okay? And uh, so that's why when Jesus went to Jerusalem and Peter was there, he says, I discern you're a Galilean, your accent gives you away. And... Uh, and it's always there, no matter what men want to say or not. Um, people categorize people in every way. It's interesting, when you come to the Lord, you really just look at people. Sometimes people say, you know, when, when I used to go to the conferences and stuff like that, when Chuck was around, uh, some of the guys would say, well, what, 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 what kind of congregation do you have? Uh, how many Mexicans do you have? How many? I said, well, you know what? I never counted them. Is it predominantly Mexican? No, not really. I mean, the congregation has changed, but we don't count colors here or anything. We just count people. Whoever comes, they get fed. Whoever repents, they get saved. We're not into trying to get uh, 10% of Mexicans, 20% of blacks, and 30% of Orientals or whatever. And, but this is what the majority of churches today do in Pasadena and other cities. Because they want to show the community that they're all inclusive. But of course they do this by not preaching sin and repentance. It's a very compromising gospel. Jesus says just preach the gospel. And whatever fish you pull up, clean it and throw it in the boat. No, Jesus cleans all his fish and they never stink. He's a great fisherman. He takes care of them. And so verse 17, he says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the sea, 
of Galilee saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And so here it is. He starts his ministry. Uh, Three-quarters of the ministry of Jesus was fulfilled in the major portion of the Galilee. Three-quarters of his ministry. Repent. Turn about. Change your mind about God. Sin. Same message that John gave in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is calling now his disciples. Verse 18, walking in Galilee. You have Simon uh, called Peter, and you have Andrew, his brethren. They're casting their nets, for they were fishermen. And Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, the, the statement is simply because of their occupation. And he's making a play on words that now I'm going to make you fishers of men in terms of preaching the gospel and pulling people out of the world. Um, they immediately left their nets and followed. Now, these guys were not poor. They had a business. They had boats. They had servants. If you compare the Gospels, all right? Um, they had a good business up in the Galilee. And, and yet here, immediately it says in verse 20, they left their nets and followed him. Now, again, this is not the first time. The first chapter of John will help you get some information. Chapter 1, verse 31 to all the way to 51. You have there um, Philip and Nathaniel also uh, mentioned. And in verse 21 says, Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a boat with Zebedee his father mending their nests, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So here again, Jesus has begun his ministry. He is being directed and guided by God. He's choosing these men, men who were like you and I, flawed. I, I, I imagine them walking down the Galilee Road and, you know, Peter tripping Andrew or something or smacking on Just like regular guys. In fact, often they converse about who was the greatest. And Jesus told them one time, hey, what are you guys talking about? Oh, nothing. Lord, the Galilee, it is beautiful during their springtime. When they got there, he brought a kid and he says, hey, if you don't become like him, you can't be great. He rebuked them three times the conversation. It was at least 300 times, I guarantee you. The dirty dozen were not servants. They wanted to be served. Immediately they left their boat. Verse 23 to 25, you have the wholesome ministry of Jesus. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. We have an example in Luke 4, as he goes into the synagogue and he says to Isaiah, in your hearing, these scrolls is fulfilled and they almost killed him. Because he rebuked them for not having faith. 
teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Preaching is for the non-believer. Teaching is for the saint. Christians are not being taught today. They're being entertained. They don't go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book to their own destruction. And healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. And the inference there is healing all kinds of sickness, long-standing diseases and all kinds of diseases of, the, of temporary disorder. All. We get told all the time about these hearing, healing ministries and all that. Now, God has healed people in this ministry, but we don't have healing ministries. We don't have, you know, Thursday, God shows up and everybody gets healed. We pray over you, anoint you with oil. Sometimes God heals people. Sometimes they die. Sometimes they don't get well. They have to go to the doctor. But God is sovereign. He does as he wills. We're just to lay hands, anoint, and pray in faith and let God be God. And not be shocked when God heals somebody. We should expect it very, very, very much. Then his fame went throughout all of Syria, up north. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. And those who were demon-possessed, epileptics. Notice the distinction between demon possession and epileptics, okay? And paralytics. And he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Just hearing of all that he was doing, the proclaiming of God's word, people getting saved, lives being transformed, people being raised, people being healed. Great multitude fallen. It benefited the Galilee region incredibly. The Decapolis were the ten cities of the Transjordan, the territory given to Reuben and Gad and half-tribe of Manasseh. Jerusalem, Judea, the east side of the Jordan, all over. Amazing. Now God uses you. He uses me. As I think back to 37 years that God has started this ministry, and I think of the people and the amounts and the doors that God opened up, the things he has done and how he's provided and all the different things, it's, I'm in awe at his goodness, how good he is. The lives he has just, drastically change, just pick people up out of the sewer and just set them on solid ground, just turn their lives around. What used to be just sadness and depression, there's joy, there's just immense peace. Jesus is the only one that can do that, ladies and gentlemen. Not a pastor, not elders, not emotions, but Jesus through his word and the power of his Holy Spirit. If you're here tonight, you don't know Jesus Christ or maybe over the internet or the radio. God loves you. He died for you. He wants to forgive you of your sin and give to you eternal life. If you believe that he is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, 
that you can call upon him and be safe right now, right where you're at. Father, we thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We love you, Lord. We thank you for tonight, for your word, for your goodness towards us, Lord. And we pray, Lord, you would deal with our hearts and those who are on the internet and radio, Lord, and those present. If there's anyone who doesn't know you, Lord, that you would just minister their heart and they call on your name as you've made your word clear and alive, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. So whether you're here over the internet or wherever you may be, it's a simple prayer of repentance as you ask God to forgive you. If this is your desire, you can repeat this prayer and he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.